At first, only a few night owls noticed something strange happening deep inside the 12-story condominium that stood next to the Atlantic Ocean. It was well past midnight on a breezy June South Florida night, and most residents of Surfside's Champlain Towers South had already drifted to sleep. Even those who were still awake didn't get much warning. It happened quickly. A fourth floor resident saw the swimming pool's deck came in, while a guest at a nearby resort captured video of water leaking through the ceiling of the parking garage. Soon, the entire building began to shake, and more residents were awakened by a growing rumble, followed by a series of booms. They barely had time to get out of their beds before two large chunks of the 140-foot-tall structure fell to the ground, collapsing 55 apartment units into a heap of smoldering rubble. The search for survivors began immediately, with more than 80 emergency vehicles from throughout South Florida on the scene within 20 minutes. They faced a difficult mission. Large portions of the building had essentially been flattened into a pancake, with debris piles as tall as six feet. Rescue efforts were further complicated by sporadic fires and by large pools of water flooding the parking garage beneath the towers. There were concerns about the remaining structure's stability and fears about the threat of further collapses that could endanger the rescue workers who were urgently racing to save others. Behind the scenes, a specially trained team from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was working hard to prevent this. The cadre of structural engineers had been deployed supporting FEMA's urban search and rescue mission. They carefully monitored structural conditions, advised leaders, and mitigated hazards. Their efforts ensured safe rescue operations and prevented a compound catastrophe. 98 people perished in the Surfside condominium collapse, but it could have been worse. 37 people were rescued, including 35 who were pulled from the uncollapsed portion of the building that stood another 10 days before it was demolished when threatened by Tropical Storm Elsa. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' Urban Search and Rescue Program deploys specially trained and equipped structural engineers to augment FEMA Urban Search and Rescue Task Forces, incident support teams, military technical rescue organizations, and general purpose troops during structural collapse incidents and other disaster response missions. This rescue engineering capability provides technical support and advice to task force leaders and commanders to assess damage, mitigate hazards, enable safe entry, and assure mobility throughout a disaster site to enable rescue and life-saving operations. The USACE program also develops doctrine, training programs, and national standards for structural collapse response operations. Meanwhile, ERDIC plays an important role in this effort, providing both personnel and knowledge that enables safer rescue operations. I'm Chris Kiefer, and with Megan Holland, this is The Power of ERDIC. Our guests today are Jeff Quinnell and Dr. Oliver Taylor. Jeff is a structures specialist at the USACE South Pacific Division and is also program manager for the USACE Urban Search and Rescue Program. Oliver is a senior researcher at ERDIC's Geotechnical and Structures Laboratory and a member of the USACE Urban Search and Rescue Team. We'll talk with Jeff and Oliver about this world-class team that rapidly responds to some of the nation's and the world's most challenging rescue operations, 
greatly reducing the risk of further collapses and saving the lives of both victims and rescue personnel. Guys, thanks for being here today. Jeff, I'm going to kick it off with you. Simna started at a high level. Through the Urban Search and Rescue Program, USACE maintains extensively trained structural engineers. So a disaster like the Surfside condo collapse happens, and then the team is called in to assist FEMA. What sort of things are you doing, and, and what role do you play in those missions? Well, uh, good morning. Is the uh, program manager my first task when when getting the call or even anticipating the call is to assemble uh, the available cadre members and in anticipation of that call, you know, typically a big event like this occurs and, and our cadre becomes aware of it just through media and will immediately start gathering any possible intel on the incident, you know, like historical data or aerial imagery, uh, building plans. And there's kind of a network of structure specialists, even for FEMA and, and states that that we might dialogue with just to kind of see what's going on. And um, But in general, our, our role is to augment the FEMA urban search and rescue teams and their task forces in that structure specialist position. As Macon mentioned in the intro, you know, we perform rescue engineering to mitigate hazards that promote more safe rescue operations. FEMA has 28 task forces nationwide, and, and these task forces have a very limited number of structure specialists. Uh, when a large-scale, heavy structural collapse like this happens, that's where additional disaster engineering resources are needed, and that's how we fit in. So you're not only helping with the potential victims of the collapse, but you're making sure that the rescuers that come in are able to do what they need to do safely. Exactly. That's that's really our, our the focus of the structure specialist and the engineering component of what used to be a full standing structure and it is now collapsed or partially collapsed and trying to identify how do we safely approach this or how do we mitigate a hazard or shore up a, a collapsed entrance to get to victims. Our task is, is really to provide guidance in that sense to make more safe operations for rescuers to go in to make rescues. Right. So with the Surfside condo collapse, I remember that it took a quite a long time to get in and find the victims. And I think a lot of people didn't understand why it was taking so long, but it wasn't safe for the rescuers to go in. Is that is that right? That's that's right. Um, there, there were significant concerns with that freestanding structure. You know, we've got a collapse of unknown cause that really uh, was was another uh, element. But the collapse uh, site in general, when you've got a 12-story structure, that's a concrete structure and it had pancake collapse, you've got pretty much every floor layered on top of each other with a very small void space to attack that. And with the heavy debris, uh, limited resources at the start of an incident to try to remove uh, debris and not compromise the existing structure and maintain safety at the local level of where operations are taking places was uh, very, very significant. You know, some of the people probably don't even think about, but the fact that that rescue operation could be sustained without any further injuries to the rescuers is no small matter. And, and that's kind of the, the, the role that you all are playing behind the scenes. Our role as structural specialists is really to take an unsafe uh, situation and make it as safe as possible for people that are going to go in there. There's not a case where the first responders aren't going to go in there. Um, you can hold people out for so long, but they're going to go in there. And it's our job to make sure that they can do that safely, quickly, 
and with the best chance of success. Jeff, how did the Urban Search and Rescue Program get started? There was uh, one key incident that was a catalyst that prompted the great need for a more comprehensive urban search and rescue system. And that was the the 1985 Mexico City earthquake. There were about 10,000 deaths that occurred with that event. And there were actually 150 rescuers that perished in secondary collapses after aftershocks. And so that identified a great need for an engineering component to urban search and rescue. Uh, But more domestically, the Loma Prieta earthquake in 89 and the intensity of the failures and collapses of the two heavy structures. There's the Highway 880 Cypress structure and the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge collapse, uh, where FEMA recognized uh, more of a need for a heavy rescue capability. There really wasn't any urban search and rescue training for engineers in the United States at that time. Jeff, how did you get involved with this and how long have you been involved? Well, um, it's a, kind of a, an interesting story, really. I'm actually a twin brother, and uh, my folks didn't know if we'd be able to both go to college at the same time. And, and so I actually had a backup plan to become a firefighter. Obviously, the financial aid came through and I became an engineer, but um, it was uh, back in 2005, actually earlier than that, but we had a, a veteran structure specialist on the team at Seattle District at the time, and that's where I learned about the program and uh, had immediate interest at that time and joined the team in 2005 and that actually became a, a great fit for my mutual interests in, in engineering and fire service. And Oliver, how about you? How did you get involved? My, my story for involvement actually predates my time even knowing that the cadre existed. Back when I was on active duty as a forward reconnaissance engineer, this is what I did, right? I'd go look at buildings that have been blown up for various reasons. And so when I came to work at Erdic in 2011, um, I was at a conference and uh, presenting some research that I was doing at the time. And I ran into Tom Niederhofer, who was running the program, the USACE STS program. We just ended up talking and he was the one that encouraged me to come out, apply uh, and be a part of the team, even though I'm kind of like an oddball, right? Because I am a geotechnical engineer. Um, so what business should I have in structures? Well, I also have a structural design certification and forces are forces. Uh, once the, the building collapses, it's, it's not too dissimilar from anything else uh, in terms of how you have to approach the problem. So Tom really encouraged me to, to start and I started in 2011 and uh, I haven't looked back. And, and I know you mentioned we talked um, off air, you know, previous to this, that a lot of the experiences that you had in the military, you know, have kind of really been relevant in these situations. Yes. Uh, I mean, my military experience was helpful for me in that it's a special type of engineer that can do this work. It's, it's not everybody can do it. Um, and I think there takes a mindset uh, of looking at something that is not safe and going, oh, okay, it's not safe, but what can I do? And that is something that, you know, I was, I guess, fortunate or unfortunate, depending on which side you want to look at it, that I had experience of, of doing that in combat situations. Jeff, what are some of the past deployments for this team? Well, some of our most notable deployments also predate my involvement on the team, but Oklahoma City bombing in, in 95, of course, the World Trade Center collapse in 2001. And uh, prior to this incident at the Champlain Tower collapse, uh, there was the Haiti earthquake response in 2010. 
those were our, our most notable urban search and rescue mission assignments that we've supported. We've also supported uh, like Hurricane to Katrina, Hurricane Ike. Those were actually urban search and rescue missions at the start uh, as well. Um, but um, we have more commonly uh, or more frequently support a lot of the ESF-3 deployments that happen much more frequently. And the ESF-3 is, is Emergency Support Function 3. Those are more civil response, like infrastructure assessment, uh, debris missions. So Oliver, tell us about Surfside. Can you describe the scene and what it was like and what you most remember? Um, so my involvement with Surfside uh, came at the what was the ending of the FEMA uh, rescue and recovery phase, and it was transitioning over into the evidentiary collection, the forensics phase. We still had a, a, a rubble pile from collapsed buildings. There were still two people that were that were not yet fully accounted for when I showed up. Taking over uh, mid-operation or even towards the end of an operation is, is a challenge in and of itself because you got to learn what's been done, where things are, and it's drinking from a fire hose mm-hmm. right off the bat. And you need to, you know, you're, I was down onto the collapse pile within probably an hour of showing up on site. And we were looking for structural members in a pile of rubble and anything that else could point to to what happened. Jeff, you were on the scene even closer to the incident itself, right? What do you remember about it? Uh, that's right. Um, I, I arrived on day four after the collapse. Upon my arrival, it was uh, a much more chaotic environment. You can imagine uh, early response, not all resources have arrived. You're seeing an enormous rubble pile. As I mentioned, it was a 12-story structure that pancake collapsed on top of itself. And uh, you're basically seeing uh, a huge rubble pile that uh, has layers of floors uh, with very tight and small void space. But more of concern was the task force rescue personnel that were operating in the shadow of the collapse zone. And so there was great concern and uncertainty on the condition of that remaining structure that was still standing in assessing the site and trying to identify where is the safe op- safe area to work. Uh, there were a lot of challenges and complexities with assessing that. And as Oliver mentioned, you know, this was a fresh collapse. There's a pretty narrow window of when uh, you can expect to find uh, viable victims and so in, in trying to make, make rescues, um, you're, you're trying to identify where can uh, these operations take place. The rescue personnel are going to go into that structure if they, if they hear a cry for help or if there's, if there's canines that are making hits on live victims. They're going to go into a, a zone no matter how unsafe it is. And so that's where some complexities take place. And then arriving on scene, that was all over the place. That makes me want to ask both of you, is there an emotional toll that comes with working in these types of environments? Um, there's, there's always an emotional toll. Everybody handles pressure situations differently. We do actually go through training on recognizing the fatigue, the mental fatigue aspect of not just during deployments, but post deployments as well. Mm -hmm. I think one of the key things that I'd like to mention is that the hazards that we're talking about are not just solely a structural component, right? So one of the things that uh, we had to do while we were there is try and figure out where certain things were that could present additional hazards. Um, For example, we were clearing out the parking ramp. Mm -hmm. And unbeknownst to me at the time, who was probably standing about 
10 feet from the uh, bucket of the excavator in the pit, we hit uh, the propane storage for all the bottled propanes for uh, people's grills um, that shot chunks of concrete at me, you know, flint whizzing by my head and my feet. So it's understanding where these things are in the building yeah. is just as important uh, as understanding that, okay, this transfer beam belonged here, or I need to support, you know, this overhead column or, or mm-hmm. floor slab. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot that goes into our assessments, um, that are maybe not so much thought of as the typical role, but understanding where things are, okay, where are the cars parked? Cars have leaking fuels. They have void spaces. Void spaces are great for finding people. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. these are, these are things that even in my involvement, which is much later in the, the effort, you know, these were still things of great concern that we were still dealing with. One of the things that people don't necessarily understand about a a collapsed structure is when we talk about a rubble pile, it is a very unstable element, right? It's not like, oh, there's a pile of busted up concrete on the ground, we can just walk all over it. it. It's something that when you step on it, it moves, it shifts, it rotates, you know, you can get, um, rebar and all sorts of other things that are going to just magically show up mm-hmm. in the pile itself that you don't know where it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding, you know, that, okay, yes, there's this collapse structure, but how do you remove? And that was one of our biggest questions was, all right, how are we going to remove some of this stuff so that we can not have bigger chunks come crashing down or inadvertently do things that are not in the best interest of the mission itself? And I guess it's a good segue to talk about kind of what the specific roles were in this response. I know Jeff can talk a lot more about the initial uh, rescue recovery uh, roles, but while I was there, it was a transitional phase where it was phasing out from being under Miami-Dade homicide control into more of the forensic NIST involvement, which is the National Institute for Standards Technology. So the initial phase is, okay, where is everybody? How do we get everybody out? The phase uh, then transitions to okay, let's get all the let's recover all the human remains. Let's let's get all the people's bodies and mm-hmm. belongings and things like that. That was one of the harder parts to do was yeah. pull out people's belongings mm-hmm. um, and tag that. But then you move into the ever important question: Why did it fall down? There's no final answer to that, but. Our role, as uh, you say, STSs, was transitioning into, at that point, being able to identify key structural members that would have resulted in a potential initiation for the collapse. We kind of knew where it started mm-hmm. uh, based on all the eyewitnesses, even uh, like um, home cameras. If you look at all the security camera home video footage, you can start to pick apart where, okay, this is where we need to look for elements and members. Mm-hmm. And then out of this giant haystack full of needles, go find your needles. Who's best suited to go pick out from a, a pile of rubble the, these elements that they're after, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, if, if they asked for, uh, we want a floor slab, surprisingly in a 12-story building, the floor slab was one of the harder pieces to find intact. Now you got to hunt for a 
floor slab piece that came from the right part of the building mm -hmm. that they can test to see, okay, what was the concrete strength mm -hmm. in this? Or what was the rebar spacing? Or, you know, was there a good enough bond between uh, the rebar and the concrete or uh, things like this? Uh, my, my role initially uh, was supporting the lead IST structure specialist. The FEMA incident support team, once they get set up and, and start managing the disaster, their lead structure specialist has a role for kind of managing the, the engineering resources and assessing what's needed. And so I ended up supporting his efforts for such a large disaster that was, was quite significant in, in managing the resources and performing the mission and doing some of these structure specialist tasks. But initially I served as his deputy and we ended up bringing in more resources. Another group of 20 structure specialists was brought in and we kind of labeled them as the enhanced structure specialist unit. Uh, that became one of my tasks was to manage that. We were establishing intensive structural monitoring around the entire circumference of the freestanding structure. That thing, in my view, was was a house of cards, you know, without any kind of assessment and operations happening in, in the, the collapse zone. And so establishing the monitoring was one of our priority tasks uh, at the beginning. And that's something that the structure specialty does, uh, does very well with specialized instruments. Um, we also support task force ground rescue operations, anything that's localized. Uh, like Oliver said, doing efforts on these piles, you're, you're on unstable areas there. You know, removal of a, a top slab may expose a void or other hazards or a propane tank, like he said, um, think things like that. We're also supporting heavy equipment operations, like Oliver shared with the support we did to NIST. Heavy equipment operations was involved in picking out these pieces. When you've got rescue teams that are, are uh, gung-ho with going rescue operations and removing debris to uh, locate uh, or search for, for victims, the equipment was actually damaging a lot of the evidence in the process. Now, mm -hmm. uh, that was a priority was to do the search and, and rescue. And so that was it was a secondary concern at that point mm -hmm. if there was a rescue operation going on. But uh, what we ended up doing was actually marking with paint some of these key structural elements. And as Oliver mentioned, who better to uh, be able to be the eyes for NIST to uh, locate and identify key structural elements in, the, in these areas. And so operators were able to kind of steer clear of the painted items and pull out uh, key evidentiary elements. So we've mentioned that these deployments are thankfully infrequent, but as you've said, when one of these deployments is necessary, highly specialized skills are needed. So how do you keep those skills sharp and how do you make sure that you're always prepared and ready when you're called upon? The CORE's Urban Search and Rescue Program, we actually deliver five training events per year. Three of them are regional weekend refresher courses that are designed to help keep those perishable skills sharp. The training's pretty intensive, uh, even the, the certification course, and we also have an advanced training that's a week-long course as well that uh, really puts the structural engineer in a, a stressful situation. There's academic elements that we uh, instruct in the classroom as well as some field exercises. We have a training site that we use that has underground features and, and mock collapse elements that uh, try to make the, the scenario as real as possible. Uh, we have instructors who are experienced and seasoned task force members and leaders who, um, if you can imagine, uh, you know, engaging an engineer, engaging with a firefighter, uh, you can probably imagine what that kind 
kind of dynamic may be like. Oliver mentioned that it takes a certain type of engineer to be able to do this. And the the training really does a a good job with putting them in a situation uh, where they have to make quick decisions and provide guidance in a unified manner to task force leaders and firefighters to provide some understanding of the hazards, the risks, and what measures need to be taken for a task force going in to make rescues. In addition to you all taking training, I mean, I guess another part of your mission is is offering broad training and, and doctrine and, and, and so forth. Can you kind of talk about kind of that broad mission and, and that aspect of it? We actually provide the training through the core here for all structure specialists. It's uh, all structure specialists for FEMA, for the core, of course, state teams, as, as well as uh, military. And we've actually had international engineers on rescue teams come through our training program. This is a world-class training. It's You can't find anywhere else. Through the development of the program, the doctrine you're referencing, um, I, I'd say is, is probably most significantly our field operating guide. The instructors that we've brought in to deliver this training are PhD level professors in some cases and others who are just high-level engineers in their industry and have all come together to develop the training. We actually develop designs for shoring, for example, and different tactics that we use to approach various types of construction. A lot of these things are in detail, um, including engineering calculations and approaches in a field operating guide that is uh, updated every three years. That's something that has become a standard item on most fire trucks uh, rescue uh, entities around the world really but uh, anywhere anywhere you go in the in the US uh, you can probably find uh, the field operating guide or some components of it like the shoring components on fire trucks and, and rescue squads across the country so moving back to the big picture why does this program matter and how does having this capability make a difference in an urban search and rescue mission if we look at where things have historically been trending, especially in the current situations, disasters are becoming more frequent. And whether that's because of our aging infrastructure or shifting in climates, we're seeing more frequent disasters. So having a group like this that is well-prepared, highly trained, experienced, pays dividends for things that are going to happen in the future. It's just a matter of when, not such a matter of if. And that, to me, is the the bigger picture of why does this matter? Well, it matters a whole lot if you're somebody that's in that building that wants to be pulled out of the building. It matters a whole lot if you're trying to find out what happened in a a hurricane to large areas. So you're talking towns, cities. These are all places where loved ones are. That's what programs like this actually offer, big picture. To add to that, it's a special person that can do this type of work. And the things that were learned from like the Mexico City earthquake or Loma Prieta or World Trade Center is that you just can't react after the fact and go pluck an engineer from the shelf. There's not like an engineering Walmart out there. So you need to have these pieces in place so that you can have a quick response. A quick response to any disaster situation is going to give you the best probability of a favorable outcome. Just a 
put another spin on it. It takes roughly 18 months. You know, we could probably do it quicker in a, an emergency, but it takes roughly 18 months to fully train and certify a structure specialist with the training program that we have in place and, and the readiness requirements. So where does Erdic fit into this group? I mean, obviously you have team members like Oliver who work here at Erdic, but how do Erdic's uh, skills and competencies improve the capabilities of the urban search and rescue team? We do have a lot of highly trained, very knowledgeable people that we can add physically to the cadre. Um, that's one aspect. Mm-hmm. But Erdic's technologies and innovations and things that we have learned, those can be very easily or readily used by the rescue community. A case in point is I've also been working with the search and rescue community, the MUSAR Foundation out of Michigan, in conjunction with some FEMA STSs Mm -hmm. on developing new standards for emergency trench rescue shoring. So taking what Erdic has learned from our military programs in uh, soil mechanics and um, how unstable soils behave, we've been able to develop new standards in trench rescue that that have never existed before. And these are being used and taught uh, not just across the United States, but internationally as well. Being able to bring to bear the knowledge that Erdic has in getting people out of a trench, right, where rescues were at hours. If you think about being buried underground for hours, it's not really a viable situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we can take that down to minutes now. And it's that idea and those innovations that Erdic has that we took from the military engineering side of the house and said, you know what, these are great militarily, but they can serve this other community because science is science. And we were able to transpose that right into a needed element of that. And the same idea is available for other Erdic technologies. Some of our remote sensing technologies for structural health monitoring. These can be easily adapted and applied to what's happening to our bridges during hurricanes. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about things that could potentially augment an STS core, here's new technologies that the URTIC has that we've tested, we've proven, fielded, that brings to the next generation of what search and rescue could look like. Jeff, can you kind of add to that point and talk about some of the the value that Erdic brings to this team? Well, sure. Another element in what Oliver has done with trench rescue research and incorporating some of those elements in search and rescue community is bringing his skill sets into the classroom as well. We've I mentioned the, the regional training weekend refresher courses, and that's that's a training event that we modify every two years. And so we try to update it with recent events or new developments. And one of our most recent versions of the curriculum incorporated uh, some geotechnical elements, uh, including some of the trench shoring and elements with the geotechnical engineering that isn't something that most structural engineers uh, deal with uh, day in, day out. And so he collaborated with some of the other FEMA instructors to develop a module that we brought into the regional training curriculum. And so that's another another area that was very useful. We also have exercises that we conduct and we have a extreme cold weather capability as well. And our team has appropriate PPE and uh, 
Uh, some of what we do in that exercise is test our equipment and identify other tools that Erdic brings to uh, further test and see how it operates in a cold weather environment, as well as how we can incorporate that into a structure specialist equipment cache for use on any event. Jeff, how many Erdic employees are part of the USACE uh, Urban Search and Rescue team? We have four that are fully certified, two at the uh, Champaign location, and, and we've got two at Vicksburg. We've got a, a fifth recruit who is um, not fully certified yet, but uh, so we, we've got five active, and that's um, out of, we've got roughly 35 structure specialists with Corps of Engineers structure specialist cadre across the enterprise. In terms of collaboration, I know we've talked about, you know, your collaboration with FEMA. Are there other partners that you are collaborating with as well? Yeah, and the, and the FEMA collaboration is, is something that we should highlight a little bit more is, is they are a true partner in this program. We actually have an interagency agreement with FEMA that actually funds the training contract for the instructor services. And so that's a key part, but those instructors are also part of FEMA's structure subgroup. Aside from that, we also have uh, partnerships with NASA. We have a training facility in Mountain View, California, that uh, it's actually the NASA Ames Research Center. We also work with uh, the National Guard Bureau, state teams that, that participate with our training. We, we, uh, we work with them as well. And we also work with the 9-11th Technical Rescue Engineering Company. It's an Army unit in the military district of Washington that, that responds to any event in the national capital region. You know, another key part of the, the training program, and the fact that we are the only program that trains structure specialists means that everybody that you're going to see at an incident who's a structure specialist for FEMA or the state, they came through our training program. So we often know these people. We have, you know, some familiarization. We train the same. And so there's a collaborative effort during an incident. And there's a trust that's already established in the classroom. And uh, it it really helps. And it was, uh, it was very, um, parent at the Surfside incident, that well-oiled machine was was there. We knew what the other person was doing. We could, a guy that was on the pile communicating with somebody looking through the instrument during, in an overwatch position, knew they could trust and rely on what they were doing and feeding back that type of technical information. And so that's a very important part. Yeah, that's great. And people don't fully realize the work that you guys are doing behind the scenes, keeping that rescue effort going, you know, keeping additional lives safe. And, and thank you all for, for all those efforts. And thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Urban Search and Rescue is a dangerous undertaking conducted in fully or partially collapsed structures in austere environments. These structures are typically multi-storied and contain heavy debris with a high potential for additional collapse. The USA Structure Specialists monitor and evaluate damaged structures, mitigate hazards, and advise incident commanders to reduce risk to both rescue personnel and victims. The Power of Erdic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Erdic on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Erdic podcast in all major podcast players please subscribe and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Visit powerofurticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofurticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all we have time for today. We'll see you next time.